This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Some people think they know better than everyone else. A company founder might feel they can steer their ship better than their board of directors. Or an independent child might believe they're ready to grow up faster than their parents expected. Titus Salt also believed that he knew better than those around him. And he wasn't shy about it either. The thing was, Titus had elevated himself so highly above everyone else, he didn't see what was going on right under his nose. Titus hailed from a small market town called Morley in Leeds, England back in the early 1800s. His father, Daniel, sold things like salt, varnish, and glue, an occupation known as a dry salter. Daniel sent his son off to school for a time before Titus eventually struck out on his own as a wool dealer, a job he held for two years. But home kept calling him back, and so Titus packed up his things and returned to become business partners with dear old dad. Their company, Daniel Salt & Son, dealt in textiles, specifically Russian wool. They eventually branched out in the 1830s, too, incorporating alpaca wool into their offerings and increasing the company's footprint. Over the next 20 years, Titus took over operations and skyrocketed to the top of the textiles industry. Daniel Salt & Son had more employees than any other business for miles, and with nowhere else to go but up, he decided to enter the realm of local politics. In 1848, Titus was elected mayor of Bradford, where he lived and worked. Now, he may have been immensely wealthy, but he also recognized that his factories were harming the people of the community. They were spewing dangerous levels of smoke and soot into the air. And while he did his best to clean things up, his efforts ultimately failed. Meanwhile, Titus's company continued to grow. In fact, it became too big for the town, what with its six mills and all. And so Titus made a bold move. He bought a large plot of land in Bradford. It was located along the river, not too far away, but he wasn't going to build just another bigger factory, one that would consolidate everyone under one roof. No, Titus had much grander plans than that. He was going to build a whole new town. He called it Saltaire, a self-contained village for himself, his workers, and their families. He kicked things off with a mill, which opened on his birthday, September 20th of 1853, And from there, Titus went on to construct schools, houses, churches, and even a hospital in Saltaire. He paid for much of it himself, with a focus on cleanliness. Now, back in Bradford, life expectancy hadn't grown past about 20 years. But in the new town of Saltaire, it climbed to a whopping 70 years. People didn't just live and work in Saltaire. They thrived. Their homes had gas and water fed to them directly from the mill. Roads were paved. 
and there was a train line nearby that brought supplies and materials directly to the town. Saltaire had it all. Except for one thing. Pubs. Titus refused to allow pubs or beer shops to be erected within his pristine little village. Part of Saltaire's allure for him was his ability to watch and control his employees. They lived and worked in his town, but he felt his control extended beyond the workday. He was a staunch Methodist, you see, and he insisted that his workforce exercise the same level of faith as he did. This included no drinking, no gambling, and no swearing. Not exactly the easiest thing for 3,500 mill workers looking to unwind after a long day on their feet. But even though Titus controlled his factory and his employees, there was one thing he had no control over. Time. The great philanthropist and businessman had to meet his maker one day. And he did, on December 29th of 1876. Now the people loved him, and a statue of Titus Salt was erected in nearby Roberts Park, a memorial to the man who improved the standards of living for his entire workforce and helped the less fortunate. But that wasn't all that went up after his death. Titus, as I said earlier, did not drink. He would not allow any public houses or saloons built within his town's borders. Well, sensibilities changed once he was out of the picture. Today, Saltaire is home to several pubs and bars, including one with a cheeky nod to the town's founder. It's called Don't Tell Titus. This episode is sponsored by Intuit. Here's a story for you. Once upon a time, a young woman was haunted by the ghosts of bad financial decisions, with credit card debt and an empty savings account looming over her every day. When she tried to ignore these ghosts, they only grew bigger and scarier, and these ghosts of her bad financial decisions were stopping her from living her best life. So she decided to face them head-on and take control of her finances with help from Intuit. Intuit helps you face your financial fears with confidence through products like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. The age of British colonialism saw a slew of undue atrocities spread around the world under the oppressive eye of the empire. The crown claimed dominion over populations that never asked for their sudden British overlords. But spread thin as they were, the British were always left open for a little bit of failure, and that opening was left on by Tipu Sultan in the Kingdom of Mysore in India. Tipu and his kingdom had an emblem, a symbol, a motto, the tiger. This tiger could be found on quite literally everything in the kingdom, from walls to flags to weapons and armor. Tipu's throne had a massive tiger carved into it, and you can bet the rest of the furniture in the place did as well but it was also the centerpiece of a rather demeaning work of art. Demeaning in a completely satisfying way, I should add. Now, the story goes that a young East India Company cadet by the name of Hector Sutherland Monroe went hunting with a few of his company buddies on December 22nd of 1792. Unfortunately for Monroe, he became the hunted instead of the hunter. You see, a clever Bengal tiger killed him on that hunt, 
and thus we have the inspiration for the piece given to Tipu Sultan. Of course, the veracity of the story is still up for debate, but you get the idea. Now, the indigenous population there loved the idea of colonial Europeans being mauled by tigers. Hard to blame them, really. One artist liked it so much that they created a work of art simply known as Tipu's Tiger, a nearly life-sized wooden version of the tiger mauling the man who may or may not have been Hector Sutherland Monroe. But it wasn't just an idle sculpture. That wouldn't have been demeaning enough for what the British Empire deserved. No, this piece of art was also an automata, not unlike the ones being produced in Europe. Its outer shell, made of painted wood, concealed an interior of metal cogs and pipes, all with a very specific purpose, to make this art come to life, and all operated by cranks. One handle, for instance, caused the colonial European's arm to rise and fall, while air pushed through a pipe in his neck, making him gurgle and moan as if he were being mauled by the tiger. Another crank activated the air within the tiger's pipes and made a satisfying growling sound, because what could be more satisfying than mauling the oppressor? No doubt the good Tipu Sultan had a blast entertaining guests at his palace as they marveled over the technological splendor of watching a European man mauled over and over by the emblem of his own country. But as they always seem to say, all good things must come to an end. Eventually, the British did invade, and they confiscated Tipu's tiger, claiming it for themselves. Now, one might assume that, given the offense they'd taken to it, they would destroy the piece. But no, they didn't do that. They just wanted it for themselves. After that, the tiger began to make the rounds through various museums in Great Britain, which it still does to this day, still being watched by the masses as it mauls its perpetual victim. Tipu's tiger an almost living, breathing symbol of the flaws and dangers of colonialism, on display by the very people it was meant to offend. Now I'd call that curious. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.